0: Chapter fourteen of the Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fourteen A Thief in Camp. The portage around the falls of the Great Spirit was short and easy. The take out was right in the little village of which mention was made in the legend of the Lost Mine, and which, like the grim mountain frowning upon it, took its name from the people or events associated with its early history. It was called Tuckerville, and consisted of a sawmill, general store, blacksmith shop, and a few scattered houses, most of them log cabins. Though clustered just above the falls were a few frame dwellings. Any lingering hopes of seeing a real Indian teepee or a glimpse of barbarian dress, which the younger boys might have had, were speedily dashed but the few inhabitants they met were true Indians, at least some of them were. There was no mistaking the high cheekbones, the broad, low foreheads, the straight, jet-black hair, and the swarthy color of skin. Many showed modifications of these characteristics, evidence of the intermingling white blood. The storekeeper was to all appearance a full-blooded white, but his name, Webquish, denoted Indian blood among his forebears. While there were no teepees or picturesque dress, There were other evidences that this was an Indian village. On the bank of the river were several birch bark canoes, which probably varied little in design or construction from the craft which had carried the ancestors of these people in their wars against the invading white race long years before. Then, as Woodhull had prophesied would be the case, there was opportunity to buy all manner of interesting things in Indian handicraft, Hardly had they pitched camp when, seemingly sprung from nowhere, an Indian squaw was in their midst beseeching them to buy baskets, moccasins embroidered with beads and quills of the porcupine dyed in bright colors, tiny souvenir canoes of birch bark, bows and arrows and trinkets of all kinds. "'Go slow,' warned Lewis. "'Remember that this isn't a freight outfit. Besides, you'll have ample opportunity to buy this kind of junk at the end of the trip when there are no more carries.' If you want some of this truck, wait a bit. We are going to be here for a day or two, and you will find that competition will lower prices, or I miss my guess. Hardly had he finished speaking when another squaw appeared as if by magic, so silent had been her approach. She was no less eager than the first in offering her wares, and the boys saw the soundness of Woodhull's advice. Laughingly but firmly they shook their heads until at last the two Indian women picked up their wares and withdrew in evident disappointment. "'Do you suppose we'll see them again?' asked Plimpton, his thoughts dwelling on a certain quill-embroidered pair of moccasins. Woodhull laughed. "'As sure as the sun will rise tomorrow morning. "'They'll never let you get away until you buy something,' said he. The campsite was a delightful spot about three-quarters of a mile from the village and perhaps half a mile below the falls. It was on a bluff overlooking the river and afforded a delightful view both up and down the swiftly moving stream.' A small clearing had been made, and this had become fairly well grassed over. A rough table, a good fireplace, and brown beds of balsam boughs were evidence that this was a favorite camping ground, and the boys rejoiced that they did not find it preempted. A spring of cold, pure water gushed forth at the foot of the bluff. A hasty lunch of crackers, cookies, and cheese obtained at the village store had been eaten, and it was decided that an early dinner of fish chowder, providing the fish did their part, be in order. Woodhall went over to the village to inquire about the trails up Mount Tucker. Hal and Plimpton rigged their rods, and taking one of the canoes, went in quest for the basis of the said chowder, and Walter remained to guard camp and have everything in readiness for the preparation of dinner as soon as the fisherman should return. An hardened fisherman himself, Walter could not resist the temptation to rig his own rod after his work was done and try what the river immediately opposite the camp would yield. This part of Swift River below the falls was famous for its small-mouthed black bass, and it was for these that Hal and Sister had set out. They had been lucky enough to get a supply of minnows in the mouth of a nearby brook, and with these for still fishing and spoons for trawling, they felt sure of reasonable success. For both were good fishermen, Hal especially. Fishing was his favorite sport. Walter visited the brook and managed to catch three or four minnows. With these and a casting spoon, he started out to try his luck from shore. The current was so swift that he gave up the idea of going in a canoe alone, as the handling of his craft would require all his attention, leaving him no opportunity to fish. A few hundred yards above the camp was a riffle caused by a rocky shallow, and to the head of this Walter worked his way. It was excellent bass water, There was no question about that. Selecting the liveliest of his minnows, Walter made a careful cast, allowing the bait to go down with the current to the edge of the deep water at the foot of the riffle. Just as the minnow reached the pool, the young fisherman thought he saw the green-black back of a fish just break the surface of the water, but there was no sharp strike as usual when bass take bait in swift water. In disappointment, he reeled in and tried again. Just as before, he saw the back of a fish roll lazily to the surface close to the minnow. There was no doubt about it this time. There are fish here, all right, the boy exclaimed in eager excitement, preparing for a third cast. The result was as before. The fish would rise to the lure apparently more from curiosity than hunger and lazily roll out of sight again. In such swift water, the minnows could not live long, and Walter found that as soon as they were dead the fish no longer rose to them. His supply was soon exhausted, and then he tried a spoon, casting with all the art of which he was a master. He had one strike but failed to hook the fish. After that the spoon was ignored and he cast in vain until his arm grew tired. They're here, and I believe they'll take the right bait, if only I can find out what it is, he said as he sat down to rest for a few minutes and studied the situation. Walter knew his fish. He knew that no fish that swims is more fickle in its taste. Today a bass will snap at almost anything that offers. Tomorrow the menu will be confined to minnows, and everything else will be ignored. The next day a minnow will be scorned as if such food was beneath the notice of his lordship, Sir Smallmouth. Perhaps the day following nothing will do but a grasshopper or an angleworm or it may be that a gaudy artificial fly, unlike anything that flits along the water or over it, will be the only lure to bring forth his majesty. Today he will nibble like a striped perch, tomorrow he will strike like the noble warrior that he is. It is the uncertainty as to the whim which may hold possession of him for the time being, which is one of the charms of the pursuit of the smallmouth black bass. The successful fisherman goes prepared to cater to the taste of the moment of this dofty warrior, and will try one thing after another until he finds the right thing. Walter knew all this, and as he sat watching the riffle in the pool below, he was running ever in his own mind what changes he might offer in the bill of fare. There was no room for a backcast; cast. This put flies out of the question, save as a last resort when you might strip and wade out so as to cast downstream. He had had one bath that day, however, and he was not minded to take another if he could help it, as the water was cold. Perhaps I can find a grasshopper in the opening of camp, he thought, with Walter to think was to act. He at once reeled in his line and, standing his rod against a tree, hurried back to camp. A careful search of the grass failed to rouse a single hopper, but he did find some fat crickets, and these he imprisoned in an empty cracker box. Pulling over some half-decayed old logs on the edge of the clearing, he discovered more crickets and a half-dozen fat white grubs. These he put in with the crickets and then hurried back to try his luck once more. Putting on a grub, he first allowed it to run down on the swift water of the riffle to the edge of the deep water of the pool. There it met with the same reception accorded the minnows. A bass came up to look at it and then disdainfully turned away. This was done two or three times and then Walter played his last card before trying the flies. He took the grub off and carefully impaled on the hook the fattest cricket in his box. As before he cast into the riffle and allowed the current to take the bait down to the edge of the deep water. It was hardly clear of the broken water when there was a flash from the black depths, a sharp strike which made the reel scream, and a battle royale was on. Walter had been prepared and had met the strike, fierce and sudden as it was, with a deft turn of the wrist which had driven the hook home, as he could tell by the feel of the line. He felt that if he could keep the fish in the water it was only a matter of time when the prize would be his, and that it was a big one he knew by the strain on the rod and the long rushes made by the fish. Straight down the river the fish started, and Walter let him go without trying to turn him, allowing him to tire himself against the spring of the rod and a slight thumb drag on the reel. Fifty yards of line had been run out when the fish stopped. At the first slack in the strain on the rod, Walter began to reel in cautiously but rapidly until he felt a vicious tugging. The fish was fast, but was sulking at the bottom, perhaps recuperating strength for another grand rush. Ah, that must have been it for after a few minutes of sullen tugging there was a slackening in the line that allowed the rod to straighten out devoid of any strain whatsoever. Walter knew what this meant. The bass was coming back straight toward him with a speed equal to that with which he had made his first frightened rush. Walter reeled in the slack madly and blessed the wisdom which had prompted him to rig his rod with his multiple reel, instead of the single-action reel which he had been using right along for trout. With a larger reel he was able to take up a foot of line at each revolution. But even this was not fast enough, and before the eager young fisherman could bring pressure to bear again, that which he dreaded to see and yet which was an exhilarating sight and enough to stir the blood of the most phlegmatic occurred, the fish shot into the air. He was a big fellow, at least five pounds, and Walter felt his heart pounding furiously as he reeled in the slack. As that silver bow had flashed through the air, throwing a shower of silver drops which glistened in the sun as they fell, he had noted that the fish was shaking vigorously from side to side, and he half expected to see his hook fly out. This was a famous trick of the black bass, as many fishermen have learned, to his sorrow. Only a slack line makes it possible. With a taut line and firm pressure on the fish, the jump may be prevented. Fortunately Walter's fish was too well hooked to succeed in his effort and his watchful opponent did not give him another chance. Several times he rushed for the surface only to be checked, breaking with a sullen swirl but unable to get into the air. After fifteen minutes of vigorous fighting the boy brought the fish in to his very feet. Too tired to more than flap feebly as Walter slipped his hand into the gills and lifted it out. Three more fish were taken, all above three pounds though none approached the first in size. Content with his success and assured now of the fish chowder, Walter took his way back to camp and began preparations for the meal. Two of the smaller fish were dressed and cut into convenient pieces. A peck of potatoes had been secured at the village store, and several of these he now peeled and sliced fairly thin into a pan of cold water. He would have used the evaporated potatoes, first soaking them for two or three hours, but for the fact that they were in such crumpled condition from the pounding by the moose. Walter was pardonably proud of his ability to make fish chowder and was especially anxious that this one should do him justice. Cutting three slices of fat salt pork, he laid them in the kettle and fried them to a crisp brown. Taking them out, he fried out in the fat enough evaporated onions to give the chowder a good flavor, "'taking care that they did not burn. "'He then added the fish and sliced potatoes, "'from which the water had been drained, "'filled the kettle a little more than half full of water "'and put over the fire to boil, First, adding a liberal pinch of salt. "'The cover was put on the kettle "'and the latter hung where the contents could boil steadily "'but not so hard that the fish would fall to pieces.' With the chowder under way, Walter bethought him of an experiment he had wanted to try and hitherto had had no opportunity to. There had been no bread for several days, and crackers as a steady diet became tiresome after a while. So while the chowder was cooking, Walter scrubbed the blade of one of the paddles with soap and water, the handle of the other was treated in like manner. While they dried in the sun, he mixed up dough of self-rising flour and milk with a wee pinch of salt. This dough was of a consistency to roll out and this was done by dredging the flour with the paddle blade which had been washed and using it as a breadboard. The handle of the other paddle was the rolling pin. The cover of the cocoa tin did duty as a biscuit cutter. He had just got the first batch cut out as Woodhall reached camp. The chowder was already sending forth an appetizing odor and Lewis sniffed hungrily as he approached. "'Hello, chef!' The smell of that chowder hits me where I'm empty. What in the dickens are those things? he asked. Biscuit? replied Walter briefly. Sounds good to me, but where's the oven? asked Lewis. Walter grinned. Show you in a minute, said he. Greasing the frying pan, he laid several of the round white disks therein and put the pan over a bed of glowing coals. There was a strong, even heat, but not enough to be likely to burn the contents of the pan before it could cook properly. The cover of the kettle was wiped and clapped over the frying pan. There's my oven, said Walter. Woodhall looked doubtful. This is the first time I ever saw biscuits fried, said he. Walter lifted the cover and peeped in. The biscuits had risen rapidly, and slipping a knife under one, he deftly turned it over. It was a beautiful golden brown. The others were quickly turned, and the cover replaced. A few minutes later Walter turned out as handsome a pan of biscuits as one could desire to see. Lewis picked one up and broke it open. Alas, it was not done through, and the middle was still dough. Walter's face fell, but breaking them all open, he returned the halves to the pan and the pan to the fire, and in a few minutes had thinner biscuit, but twice as many of them. The next batch he rolled half as thick, and they were a pronounced success. Walter now added a squirt of milk, made by dissolving milk powder and water, to the chowder. Seasoned with a little more salt and a sprinkling of pepper, and it was ready to serve. It was just at this point that Hal and Plimpton returned. "'I'm afraid there won't be any fish chowder tonight,' began Hal as he thrust his head above the edge of the bluff. "'I don't believe there's a fish in the river.' Just then he caught a whiff of the chowder, and his lower jaw dropped foolishly as he gaped first at the kettle, then at Walter. "'They're better in the kettle than in the river, don't you think so, Hal?' said Walter with a malicious grin. "'Who caught them?' demanded Hal. "'I did it with my little hatchet, I mean my little rod,' replied Walter, and forthwith produced the five-pounder. Hal and Plumpton gazed with eyes that, as Walter afterward expressed it, fairly bugged out. The story of his success and the cause for it was soon told, and while the others congratulated him heartily, They could not but feel a trifle chagrin that they had not thought of crickets themselves. The chowder was just as good as it smelled, and when the light, beautifully brown biscuit were produced, Walter's fame as a cook was secure for all time. Plimpton insisted that as he and Hal failed to provide the dinner as originally agreed, it was no more than fair that they should wash the dishes. While they were doing this, Walter mixed up another mess of biscuit and fried them that they might be ready to take on the climb up Mount Tucker the following day. When they had cooled, they were put in one of the small food bags, and this was slipped under an old but clean box on the table. Despite visitors from the village, the boys managed to turn in early that night and got a good night's rest. In fact, it was broad daylight before they awoke, although they had intended to start by sunup, Walter was the first out of the tents, and almost at once his glance was arrested by the overturned box on the table. The food bag lay on the ground, and of his beautiful batch of biscuit not so much as a crumb remained. At once he thought of the Indian visitors the night before. They must have returned after we were asleep, he thought, and at once notified the others of the loss and his suspicions. A hasty examination of the camp effects disclosed nothing else missing. Confound their hungry hides, growled Walter. It's enough to feed four human ostriches like this bunch without cooking for a thieving redskin. Woodhull, who had been poking around the brush just beyond the tiny clearing, came up just in time to hear the last remark. It was a redskin, all right, but you do our Indian friends an injustice, he said quietly. Never charge anyone with a crime until you have the evidence. He held up one of the missing biscuit. Where'd you find it? "'The three demanded in one voice. "'Over in the brush yonder,' replied Lewis. "'Would you like to see the thief?' "'Of course they wanted to see the thief, "'so at Woodhall's suggestion they sought the shelter of the tents. "'After he had focused his camera on the box on the table, "'the biscuit having been placed close by, "'we frightened him before he had made a clean getaway with that one,' "'Lewis explained. "'And I have a notion that he'll come back for it, "'being greedy and also bold.' The boys waited for perhaps fifteen minutes, all but Woodhall vainly conjecturing what the thief would look like and whether he would be large or small. It seemed that it must be large to have taken off that whole batch of biscuit. Suddenly there was a sound of claws on the table. A saucy, sharp-eyed head peeped over the edge, eyed the camera suspiciously, dodged out of sight, appeared again, and then in a flash a red squirrel scampered across the table and seized the biscuit just as the camera clicked. And Woodhall shouted, "'Caught in the act!' "'Nothing daunted the little red thief "'clung to his booty and would have carried it off "'before their very eyes if Hal hadn't made a rush at him. "'He promptly scurried into the woods "'where from the top of a thick hemlock "'he scolded them roundly "'all the while they were cooking and eating breakfast "'as if he considered himself the injured party. "'As no doubt he did. "'After breakfast Walter made a careful search "'for Master Red's plunder cache, "'but without avail.' and he only swore at you after all the trouble you took to cook his winter supply of bread. It's too bad, sympathized Hal. Walter grinned. I hope they choke him, he said. End of chapter 14